Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about, you guessed it, Brexit. As always, we are here based up in Manchester and also, as always, I am joined by Christian Spence. How are you, Christian? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very well, thanks. And Alex? I'm good, thank you. Uh, now, obviously lots is going on in the Chamber of Commerce and last week you had your annual dinner. Uh, how was that with all the movers and shakers? It was great, actually. We had uh, we had Andy Burnham, of course, the new uh, the new elected mayor for Greater Manchester. That was his first big public speech uh, uh, okay. since he was elected, um, and it was good, actually. He kept yep. the temperature of the room very well. You know, the uh, our annual dinner we always like to say is not really about you know the typical businessman getting dressed up in in suit and tie. Though it is about you know, they do do that. It's a celebration of the city and a, you know a vision mm. of what business does and can do for the future. Actually, he captured the mood of that really well. Yeah, I thought it was a good event. Yeah, and it uh, went on till what two in the morning or something like that. Something I think like that. Our, I was in bed earlier than that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. My chief executive was out much later. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, you know, the, these things are important and they need to be done. Absolutely. So on this week's episode, we are going to have a look at all three of the party manifestos. When we broadcast last, we only had two of the manifestos. We now have the third. So shall we lead off with the Conservative manifesto and exactly what their Brexit stance is? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I'll say is that we've, we've, all three of us have got the three Brexit sections in front of us, so you might hear some rustling of papers yep. as, we, uh, as we go through them. Um, the Conservatives are the easy one, really, um, because essentially their Brexit position was set out in the white paper in the Lancaster House speech that Theresa May gave. Mm-hmm. And there's really not a lot that's been added in the manifesto from what I can see. It's kind of just going over the same points. Um, they reiterate once again, uh, we've seen over the past few weeks that they've kind of steered away from the whole no deal is better than a bad deal thing, but it's, it's in the manifesto once again, um, so they're still, still going with it. Um, it says we continue to believe that no deal is better than a bad deal. Um, apart from that, it's broadly on, along the same lines as, as, as the, the white paper that we had before. They say that they want to go into negotiations um, you know, with a spirit of sincere cooperation, committed to getting the best deal, all that kind of stuff. So uh, in the Tories' position hasn't, hasn't changed in, in months, really, um, from what I can see, anyway, um, it's 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 broadly along the same lines that we've seen before. And do you think it's unlikely to change any time soon, leading up to the election? 
And I say change, what I mean is, do you think it's unlikely they're going to flesh this out any further? I mean, they don't seem to need to, they don't seem to want to. No, I'd, I'd agree. And I think I'd, we've already seen last week the problems that uh, political parties can fall into when they flesh out policy <laughs> in, uh, in too much detail this early on with the, with the social care reforms. No, I think that's it. I mean, you know, from the Conservative Party's point of view, and I think they'll probably be, I suspect they're thinking about this in Conservative Party HQ after the social care stuff, is because a lot of their initial thoughts, as they call this election, is actually all they need to do is not, is really not say anything mm. about anything. The wind has been blowing in their direction um, for a while. Uh, we hear this, you know, this constant mantra of strong and stable. Um, and so, no, I think... For them now, I think it probably was the case anyway, after the social care problems, I think there is now so much risk attached yeah. uh, to them trying to flesh anything out in more detail and being caught up on it, that essentially it is what it is, we're leaving, we're leaving the single market, we're leaving the customs union, we're going to repatriate the law, basically that is the position. Although I, actually the one thing I will dwell on actually is we've had this, um, this confirmation of, uh, of not repealing uh, Human Rights Act and staying within the framework of the European Convention on Human Rights, which which is a slight shift, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, that's one Theresa of the May's position. Certainly, kind of twelve months ago, was very strong that we were going to leave that. Now, of course, the EHA, the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, is nothing to do with the EU. We need to reiterate that point. Uh, it predates the uh, uh, the forming of the of the European Community. But we are. She's now said actually, uh, and I think that's probably just an application to try and knock some of the what could be seen as the hard right out of her message. Uh, that uh, will, will remain signatories to that for the next parliament. That's really interesting, actually, because that's one of the things which always gets Tories a little bit angry. In fact, that kind of gets the general population a bit angry when you know, you hear something about prisoner votes or what or, or whatever it is linked to human rights, and then the almost massive repost as well. Last time someone left. Uh, um, left that, that organisation with the Greek generals in I don't know, 1970 or 1980s or whatever it was. Yeah, so that's an unusual one. It, it is unusual. And I mean, I think I can, you know, I always try to be a pragmatist. It's the nature of politics. So I can see, of policy rather, I can see why some people might have problems. So that it's kind of odd for a country like Britain, you know, for whom I actually are, you know, our long run human rights record is incredibly strong. Yeah. And we've been one of the global leaders in this for. Uh, ever since we started to abolish slavery in the you know in the early 19th century, the fact that often we might get preached to about how we handle things like that by the ECHR, which is actually got you has got judges sitting from Russia. You know, <laughs> I understand that there's a tension there about yeah. how that works, um, but you know I also understand you know the kind of the pro remainder side, which is actually this is important. You're to trying to send these messages out. If you're going to reform, it's easier to do it from inside rather than outside. You know, all of that I think still applies. But I I think from I think from this point of view in the manifesto, it's probably probably about Theresa May and the Conservative Party just trying to make sure they stay a little bit more uh, to the centre. Clearly the ground they're trying to capture, the UKIP vote for them is won. Yeah. You know, the far, the, the, the you know the, the right wing of the of the of the country is now can't go anywhere else, essentially. Um, so for her to look for that mandate to shore up the majority as large as she can, it's gotta be centrist policies for her for her to do that. And I think that's probably one aspect of it. Mm. And also from a business point of view, I don't think it's either here, uh, here nor there, really. I, it, it's not something anyone has ever raised with me as long as I've been doing this <laughs> job uh, for a business point, no. In terms of the manifesto itself, on a more broad scale, um, how vague is the Tory manifesto compared to ones you've seen previously? It's pretty woolly, I think. There's not a lot of detail in any of the sections. There's no costings. No, I mean, nothing that's what like really yeah. picked up, isn't it? Yeah. Is that Labour, you know, Labour had to work really hard. You know, I think, you know, a lot of the issue they've had about being 
being challenged with being not economically responsible and not economically competent means they've had to work really hard on getting their numbers in order. Um, and I think actually broadly, they seem, you know, Labour seem to have passed that check. Uh -huh. the, the IFS, Institute for Fiscal Studies, has had a look at all of this and says, and, you know, you might be a bit optimistic on the long run issues because you're not allowing for how people's behaviour will change yeah. from the taxation system. But actually broadly, you're in, you know, you're at least in the right order of magnitude for these things. Well, Tories have been, yeah, they've not got anything around costing. No, I, I liked it how in the uh, Labour Manifesto, I, I think their uh, their costs were up to 48.6 billion and their revenues t totaled up to exactly 48.6 billion as well. It, it, it's good <laughs> That's, yeah, it's, it's, it's double column accounting. Yeah, fine. Which, which I enjoyed. But, um, I was quite surprised by the, the Tory manifesto. I think after I went through the, the PDF, I was searching around the website to look if there was a costings, an, extra, you know, an addition, an appendix or something, but there wasn't. And I was quite surprised by that, really. I can only imagine the horror. Yeah, 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 yeah. These things matter to policy wonks like us. Um, no, I mean, I think you can always perhaps take it back to, you know, we end up quoting Churchill about everything, we want examples. But he, always, he used the phrase many years ago, in I think the 50s manifesto, that a manifesto should be a shop window not a shopping list mm. uh, and the toys have absolutely gone for that this is kind of the the high level i was going to say it's a high level vision of what they want the country to be i'm not actually sure it is i'm not sure it's that well formed but it's it's high level rather than policy no. detail i mean it starts off doesn't it with a kind of rebranding of what conservatism is uh, in in their vision kind of thing yeah absolutely they're, you know they you know we we you know we believe in the power of markets but not untrammeled free markets yeah, yeah. that isn't the, the power of markets then yeah I mean, quite simply it's a, yeah, I'm going to push back at that because it's fun. I think you're right. <laughs> um, I, th I think you're right. There's a huge. It's it's really hard to weave that narrative. But I think even you know, no. If we kind of take, let's have the you know, the left and the right shouting at each other and imagine that world because that's mm. most of the one we're in. The right broadly says markets are great, and actually broadly we know from you know economic history tells us they are probably the most efficient way of distributing resources. Not perfect, and I think that's where the left often gets caught up. Mm -hmm. you know, from an economist's point of view they are the best, not perfect. They will mm. have all things. And economists of absolute free market and, and right-wing ilk understand the need for regulation and the need to temper those things. But it's really hard to get the right phrases. Yeah, I yeah. think that's kind of what the Conservatives struggle with, is how you pitch that so you don't actually annoy both sides at the same time. Yeah. Well, getting good regulation has been a problem for many, many governments. Not just this one, just look at tax law. Yeah. That, that, that should be pretty well established how you collect taxes now, but even tax law, it, regulation is incredibly difficult. No, and, and growing rapidly, you know, we've the largest tax code in the, uh, in the Western world, you're going to have to trawl about 18,000 pages if you, uh, if you want to know it all, and it's certain that no one person does. Um, and there's, there's actually not, there's no real commitment to deregulation or simplification. You know, we do have uh, an office of tax simplification, it was set up. I think it was in the George Osborne. Yeah, um, um, it's not George done Jones. a great deal. It's written a report or two, uh, but not much has come of it. They've so. still got the uh, one in two out rule in the manifesto for regulations, right. which, um, which again, I, it doesn't really, it's not really that helpful, is it? Well, it's uh, not, because it's not about the mm. number of regulations, but the burden they cause. And, you know, when they started this, they started with the one, one in, one out. I remember I joined the chamber around the time they were doing that, and they were doing these kind of red tape survey saying so actually one of the things you want, yeah. want people to take away actually when you read their reports after they've done that 
it'll be like actually we've introduced one piece of new legislation auto enrolment on pensions uh, and you think well that's a fairly chunky burden for, for companies to get their head around and we've repealed the you know contraband issue of fireworks to under 16s yeah. <laughs> you know and you think well that yeah <laughs> technically it's one in one out but I'm not entirely sure this is a balanced approach yeah, yeah that's a, that, that is a very good point um, we'll leave the conservative position there because I guess all of our past podcasts have pretty much been around the conservative position because that's all that we've, you know, all yeah. we've really seen. Yep. So the more interesting one to me is Labour. Um, and it's also a little bit more interesting to me because I had the pleasure of meeting Keir Starmer last Friday. Yeah, how did that go? Um, Name really, dropper really you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, really good. I've got to say, um, very impressive individual. Um, and he seems to have a very strong grasp on his brief. But the other thing which I found interesting, and I'd like to know your opinions on this, is it's his view that these Brexit negotiations are led mainly by the need to curb immigration rather than the need to improve the economy. And from that point of view, he, he believes it to be quite unusual. And I'm not entirely, I think there is an element of that. I'm not entirely sure if that's the whole story. It's really hard to kind of gauge what this is all about. I mean, I always go back to um, Lord Ashcroft did some polling of people coming out of the polling stations on voting day. And immigration wasn't the top issue. It was, I think it was sovereignty. Um, and so I, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know whether immigration is the big issue. Um, and I'm, I find it quite interesting that Starmer's kind of run with it so m as much as he has. Um, it, it is a tricky one because, I mean, even, you know, I remember talking to, when we were talking to lots of businesses around the time mm. of the referendum, one of the things that we, we kind of firmed up for them, I said, you know, is even if you look at the UKIP manifesto, uh, and actually they've not published theirs yet uh, this year. Um, actually, they talk absolutely explicitly about control of immigration, yeah. not necessarily the reduction of the numbers. Yes. Um, mm. And I just kind of feel for the politicians, I mean, particularly for Labour, who are really kind of, you know, the, 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 this kind of dissonance between the, the parliamentary Labour Party and its core vote over Brexit. You know, the, the party is split and it's having to walk this very fine line, is weaving that narrative you know, that, that control over immigration rather than restrict, necessarily restriction of numbers is a really hard one to get condensed into sound bites for, for the doorstep. And it just, it just feels to me, certainly reading their manifesto, that they're still, they're still walking with one foot on either side of that line. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so Labour seems still to be walking with this idea that they've got a foot on either side of that line. And it's not really clear how how you weave this actually it's very subtle narrative you know mm. they're terrified I think about the extremes of the party and and how they read that because you know a lot of their core vote in their core constituencies uh, is is certainly vocal about immigration but it's not really quite clear about how and, you know, and what the issues really are. Do you think it's telling that Keir Starmer is out visiting businesses rather than every other Labour politician that seems to be wanting to address mass mass rallies I suspect it's a much about trying to gain their confidence, really, and ensure that business is being, you know, business voice is being heard in all this. Um, it's it's kind of a bold statement that you might expect someone from a chamber of commerce to make. Business probably has the most to lose out of this going badly, mm. rather than your average punter in the street. Mm. Uh, and I think that's where that's where Keir Starmer is focusing is actually how do we get something that works? Um, you know, what what are businesses' genuine fears about this? Really? So what, what, what was the event that you saw him at? It was round table in Oldham, so they had Stormer going up to Saddleworth, then to Oldham, and then somewhere else. But it was all fairly Labour safe seats. I mean, there's no, there's no danger 
of all them voting Conservative in yeah. the same way that's very little in danger of Parts of Sutherland mm -hmm. voting Conservative. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it, I don't suppose it was reaching out, but it was aimed at a slightly different audience to your normal Cor uh, Corbyn speech. Yeah, yeah. and we had a roundtable with, with Keir Starmer here at the, here at the Chamber um, last year. And again, I mean, very much, in, very much in listening mode, you know, to be fair. Uh, to be fair, to as you said, that he, he comes across actually as a very, as a very bright individual who who seems you know thoroughly pragmatic about all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think you know his ability is in question. I think the challenge is is how he is how you deal with that with a party that's that's relatively split on the, particularly the immigration aspect of all of this. So, so it's interesting you mention the difference uh, of the party. Fairly famously. Corbyn's meant to be a really a not really not. I was going to say reliever then, <laughs> a uh, a lever. However, he campaigned for Remain, and one of the things apparently he has a problem with is state aid. So I thought it might be worth just digging in a bit to what the state aid rules are, uh, if we know anything about them, and why is he so against this? So. Um Yes. So I think I think let's just go back one step first. I think I think he's, I think the challenge that's been laid down to Corbyn and you know is one of the reasons that you know half the uh, half the shadow cabinet resigned in the days after the EU referendum was nobody really believed he campaigned for a Remain vote at all in mm. a meaningful sense. Uh, so certainly the party's position was Remain, uh, whilst. You know, for now we can only take his word for what he, what his own position is personally. Thirty years of evidence as an MP shows he, you know, he spent most of that life vitriolically fighting everything that the EU stands for. Uh, he sees it as a big neoliberal conspiracy to, you know, to, to open labour markets and lower jobs and all the rest of it. That's yeah. not what he's saying now, but certainly that's his, that's the history on record. So state aid kind of plays in for him of this challenge that. He wants to be able to intervene and support failing, I say in inverted commas, industries, and the state aid rules of the EU won't let him do it. So the whole, in, the whole issue around state aid, what it's there to stop, is if you open up a single market, 28 countries in Europe, all trading freely, if the government of one member state can subsidise an industry within its borders, or a company within its borders, then essentially, because it's a single market, that company or sector now has an unbelievable advantage over every other country mm. sector because they're being fiscally supported. So you know, if, I, if we were to say, let's, we're going to give you know, £10 million a year subsidy to, uh, to Jaguar Land Rover in Birmingham, the problem is now the JLR plant in Birmingham is now more likely to be financially successful than any other manufacturing plant in Europe because government's propping it up. Right. So essentially, we don't have a level playing field anymore. And the whole of the state aid rules, state aid rules say actually there is a, there is a maximum amount any one company can draw down in fiscal support from it from its own government in any, I think it's a three-year period. So, um, so anything, so when we do things like apprenticeship grant for employers, just a £1,500 gift from the state to an employer, if they do that, that gets counted against that company's, uh, what we call their de minimis level, so the amount of money they can claim uh, in any one year. And if you know, we've administered some of those programmes here at the Chamber, and actually one of the things we have to do go through is before we can put companies through that, is they need to sign off the declaration forms which say actually what forms of government support have you had ah. in the past three years. And if you're already over the limit, then you can't have any more. Oh, right. So you can't have I don't know, a grant to, to do at the front of your building and also um, an apprenticeship scheme. Depending on what you've already had yeah. uh, already. So, of course, you know, Corbyn's view a little while ago was let's go back to the big example of the Port Talbot steel factory. 
factory looking like it was going under. They say steel's a critical industry to the UK. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't particularly have an opinion on that. Um, we should, the government should put money in and rescue it. Mm. Uh, the state aid will say absolutely that is not allowed. And actually, some of the big things you've seen, so uh, RBS Group having to shelve, having to sell off a load of its branches, is directly due to state aid rules. So is the government right? came in, injected billions of cash in, well, either cash or guarantees into RBS, and the EU ruled this is implicit state aid. This company would have gone under without you doing that, so now it must get rid of assets to the value. Uh, of the support it's had, and that's why it's been desperate trying to sell off all the branches. Wow, I had no idea about that. So, um, not to get, not to drill too down, tr too deep into state aid, but I mean the ones that I think of is well, Forge, oh, Forge Master was fairly was fairly famous where the government declined state aid, yep. and I think European wide there's always been a debate around if, is Airbus competing un um, unfairly. Yeah, uh, so, so the one you mentioned the, was the, the Sheffield uh, steel manufacturer who does an awful lot of work for the nuclear industry, uh, and I think it was their nuclear supply particularly that was that was of concern when it looked like mm. uh, when it's trying to work out what government should do. Um, I think it's I think all of this is really interesting because for me it goes to the heart of actually what economic policy is and what is the role of government and what is your market. Yeah, you know, do you allow things to compete? absolutely flat and open, in which case actually some of the complaints that the Leave side have do ring true. So your manufacturing companies in what well, you could say Eastern Europe as being you know, some of the, the poorer countries in the EU or in China can get goods to market for less cost than you can, we can do here in the UK because our energy base is more expensive because it's cleaner and it's greener. Our employment base is more expensive because it's more highly skilled, we pay more money. These are really fundamental issues about how you, how you design an economy and how you want it to go. And this plays into Brexit because it plays into issues around things like tariffs. So actually yeah. the reason we have, realistically, the more reason we have import tariffs on goods from places like China is because essentially those companies can get goods into our market cheaper than our own can and therefore you risk losing our own industries here uh, for there. The flip side of that is the consumer will always end up paying more. And this is the big... Or being, ta bi or being taxed more to support those industries. Yeah, exactly. And that, this is a huge, this is a really, really complex issue, which I think no political party has, has touched mm. for a very long time. You know, I can buy, you can go and buy a car from, you know, from the, your Ford dealer down the road in the UK. It's been made in the UK. Um, you've no import tariffs because it's all done UK or EU supply chain. Great, that car costs you 15 grand. Oh no, we're worried about Port Talbot going under. Uh, we can support it. We need to keep it because we want to keep the jobs in that area. And there are good reasons for thinking about the wider economic benefit companies have over and above their supply chain. Um, so actually, we'll drive up the cost of steel by insisting Ford use it from Port Talbot rather than Shenzhen in China. Uh, Shenzhen in China. But of course, actually, the problem is the consumer buying the car has to pay more money for it. Yes. So you might have kept the jobs in Port Talbot, but you've increased the cost of cars for everyone in the UK. And that is a really difficult trade-off balance. There's a really famous example of something around tyre manufacturers in the US um, under, under the Obama presidency. And there were some companies looking like they would go under. And uh, that administration raised, rapidly raised the import tariffs. Uh, on tire, I think it was tires uh, from overseas, 
Um, you, it saved three or five thousand jobs in the plants um, mm -hmm. in America, which gave you a net. I can't remember any of the numbers, so I'll just pick them out of thin air. That gives you a ten million dollar advantage because you've kept those jobs. But the increased cost of importing those dyes, or whatever they were, into America actually had a $250 million <laughs> cost to the consumers overall. So yeah. there is this trade-off, you see, between consumers and producers and whose interests you should look after. That's quite interesting. Um, do you have any good examples of state aid in, in, um, in, in the UK either succeeding or failing? Well, I think the problem is succeeding doesn't tend to work because the rules are there. So yeah. the, the, the European courts will challenge uh, unfair state aid. So the, the rules are very, very clear. I can't remember exactly what they are, but I say it's a, there's a headline limit of X thousand euros per year or over a three-year period that companies can take. If you go beyond that, then you, know, you, are, you are breaching the treaties and it, it becomes a matter for the European court. So anything being negotiated for, in a Brexit deal, I assume is going to have to incorporate some sort of state aid rule and also some sort of organisation that will oversee state aid. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I honestly don't really understand Corbyn's position on this. I mean, I think we're, they haven't put this specifically in the manifesto, so we're kind of speculating as to what his, his true views on this are. Yeah. But if the argument is that Corbyn's a lever because he doesn't like state aid rules, then my reaction would be any kind of trade deal which we do is likely to involve state aid rules anyway. Yep. So I don't understand how we can get rid of them, to be honest. Mm. Um, so I'm, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I, I do buy that argument. That his whole position is based around that. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of desire to want to intervene, often for actually very, you know, very, very human purposes. You know, you don't want to see companies or sectors fall. Um, the challenge is from the economic point of view. There are other, there are lots of other things going on. So when yeah. a plant, when you know, I mean, what was the steel plant in the northeast that, that did close? Uh, Redcar. Redcar. See, when that cl it's, it's, you know, this kind of goes to the heart of economics. Mm. You know, when that fails. The immediately visible thing is lots of people in a very poor town have lost their job and the core industry and the core reason for that town existing. That's hugely visible. Everybody, whether you're an economist or not, can see it and can understand it. The challenge is there are other things that are not seen. So actually, if you prop that up, the bit that is much harder to see is the increased costs, et cetera, et cetera. It's really difficult. It's, you know, in case this, you know, we often talk economics 101 is it's everything's about trade-offs. You can't have your lunch, you can't have your, your cake and eat it, as Boris Johnson often says. What else is in the Labour manifesto which has caught, caught, caught your eye, if anything? Um, I, I think broad, it, it's kind of the broad ideas behind it and thinking. It just, just seems a bit muddled. Um, and I think one interesting thing that it kind of reveals is, I, I think obviously we've said that the Labour Party is split and their vote is split in you know all sorts of ways. But one of the ways in which it was split was that there were a bunch of people in the party who saw single market membership as you know absolutely key, and were, you know we need to do everything that we possibly can to stay in the single market. Um, and I think that's kind of where Keir Starmer was initially. If we're going, you know, we're going back months and months and months and months. Um, but since then, his position's kind of shifted a little bit to maybe the more middle position, which is that um, he sees, as you mentioned before, immigration as kind of the red line here, mm -hmm. and that if we cannot secure any kind of reformation to freedom of movement um, whilst remaining members of the single market, then only then would we pull ourselves out of it. Um, his, his plan is essentially to go in and try and negotiate some sort of reform to freedom of movement whilst keeping us in the single market. Um, so that's kind of in the line that Starm has been going with for the past few months. But the manifesto goes one step further into the third group, which is uh, freedom of movement is going to end and we're going to pull out the single market totally. So basically put, aligning themselves with the Conservatives. Um, there is a line uh, in, the, in the manifesto that when we exit the EU, freedom of movement will end. 
Um, so it's shifted really. It yes. kind of seems like the the more Brexiteer side of the party has won out of the kind of more moderate middle middle ground Starmer types. Um, so it's it's an interesting kind of dynamic that must must have happened there um, because it definitely seems to be a bit of a shift. Um, and it, it kind of just feels like Labour, with this manifesto, have, have finally stopped putting up any kind of fight, is, is the way that it feels to me. Well, I guess there's another way to look at this, which is when you look at the Tory position, in fact, all the Tory positions, the big bit of policy which is going to affect business is going to be Brexit. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Labour position, Brexit is the least of the issues which is going to affect business should Labour come to power. You've got renationalisation, you're, you're going to have all sorts of bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. So it kind of does strike me as sensible that you know, Brexit isn't their big centrepiece because they've, all, they've already got that. This is very much kind of a secondary issue. Well, that's the way that I read it, at least. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you're right, but the, the issue for Labour is that their position is, is kind of incoherent. Um, I mean, I, I guess you could argue that the Conservative position is incoherent as well. Mm -hmm. But Labour are very specific on, you know, we need to make sure that we maintain all the benefits mm. of the single market, we need to protect workers' rights, we need to do all these things. And y you always come back to the best way of doing those things is to stay in the single market. And the fact that they've kind of dropped any sort of fight to, yeah. to, to push that position, is it just strikes me as a bit odd. Do do you think, and this isn't um, this isn't what I th this isn't what I think that Labour are doing, but maybe you could interpret it as they just have bigger fish to fry. They see they see things like renationalisation of rail and water and stuff like that as just more important than Brexit. I, th I, th I think you're right, actually, and and part of me, a little bit of part of me, is actually kind of pleased about that. You know, one of the things we've talked about in our campaign around the manifesto is. Brexit is unbelievably important. The things that happen in the next two or five years are going to affect all of our lives in all sorts of indescribable ways. Mm. But actually, and it's important for businesses, you know, lots of businesses are talking to us about you know, specific areas in which those negotiations are important. But actually, it's not the only game in town. Mm. There are lots and lots of issues with domestic policy, which the UK government has absolute control over, um, which businesses would like to see would like to see fixed about how you look at the the UK skills system, how you reform that, and how you ensure that you know our education system to sixteen is pushing out people who can read and write, and that our FE system is responding to the needs of what employers are going to need yeah. in two or five years, not what they needed in nineteen eighty. Uh, about investment in infrastructure, in making sure you know the Northern Powerhouse and that vision of connecting cities uh, is delivered about R&D investment and new science investment and making sure UK stays at the head of global culture. You know, all of these things are doable regardless of what the Brexit situation is or becomes. That's really, that's really um, interesting point. And so, actually. you know, it's not, it's not just about Brexit. And I think that might, I think you raise a good point. I think that's perhaps the biggest difference in the manifestos, mm -hmm. is that the Tories have Brexit front and centre. And I think that's because they're leading on the, you know, the competence and the, you know, strong and stable and national interest and all of that. Uh, where Labour's looking at other stuff, there's lots of the stuff that I think Labour are looking at, which I think is, you know, in, just borderline insane. Um, there's little evidence anywhere that any of the things they're talking about nationalising will make any major difference, whether they're in the public or private sector. If anything, that may well starve investment because, you know, the, the big challenge of having industries in the public sector is investment into them becomes politicised. Yes. All of a sudden, some politician needs to stand up and say, does this money go into, uh, into renewing the sewer system of our cities or into the NHS to support our nurses? Yeah. And that becomes a very, very difficult choice for a politician the, to take. 
Yeah, and I guess the more controversial the industry, I mean, you, know, you see it with Trident, but let's just take it to the, to the, you know, the nth degree. If they nationalise something like, and I'm not saying they would, but something like, I don't know, a mobile phone manufacturer. Do we want R&D in mobile phones, or do we want some extra hospital beds? And I think that's the big challenge. And pe people often talk about, you know, well, other, you know, other countries do nationalisation better than us. And I think, actually, that is, that's absolutely true. And it's one of these things I have on my, my wish list of PhDs to do, is to try and understand, actually, why, particularly France and Germany, but actually there are many other Western nations, developed nations, can have companies in partial or whole public ownership but actually run them as entire commercial entities. Mm. So, you know, we all know, and actually, of course, most of these, bizarrely, are working in our private sector industries in the UK. So, Deutsche Bundesbahn runs a number of our, uh, runs a number of our uh, rail franchises. Is it FS, FSNC, is it the? Uh, SNCF, FN, our, yes, uh, the French railway system is just about to take over Manchester Metrolink. Um, we've got E.ON and uh, Electricité de France, EDF, are all these, you know, big state-backed, so then the state owns a, a minor, at least a minority share. Renault, Citroën are minority shareholders um, with, with the French government. But they run them at an arm's length. They mm. genuinely do. And I think also the issues here are around the, the way the fiscal system in the, each country is different. So we're unbelievably centralised in the UK. We talk a lot about this as the challenges to devolution. Um, so for the French, for the Germans, the money that gets spent on health is, is sorted. It's not a political issue. The tax system is there, it raises money, it puts it into funds, and healthcare is funded through through all of that. So you never get to the position where you do in the UK, which is we need to invest, you know, in a new sewerage system under our cities, which is not going to win anybody any votes. Mm. But to do that, the the choice is, you know, a new maternity unit at Manchester Hospital or a new sewage system for Manchester. You never get to that decision in other European countries because actually the health system is taken care of entirely separately, your infrastructure locally is being delivered by local taxation through your regional governments and not through national and all of those things get separated. I've got to say uh, the most striking thing which you just said is you've got a wish list of PhDs. Which, Absolutely, uh, doesn't uh, everybody have those? It's the first I've ever heard of it. Um, I guess we should move on to one of the, well, the largest of the minor parties. Actually that would be the SNP. So, um, the largest of the, U of the English minor parties, um, Liberal Democrats. Yeah. Um, I imagine this is quite an interesting position, actually. Yeah, I think, just, just going back to what we were talking about before with Labour and, and kind of not focusing on Brexit, it seems to me like the Tories and the Lib Dems are trying to win votes using Brexit, essentially. Um, mm. they've, put, they've both put it front and centre. It's, it's both one of the first items in their manifestos. Um, whereas the, the, the Lib Dems have, have taken the position that which the other two haven't, is that they're actively going to fight hard Brexit. Um, but front and centre for them is this whole idea that they're going to give everyone a second choice and that there's going to be another referendum on the final deal. Um, and it's in the manifesto and I honestly don't understand it because I don't see how they can guarantee that they can deliver that if they were to win and I don't understand how they can guarantee that a vote, a second vote would be meaningful in terms of the law if they did win. Um, it's still one of those issues which is up in the air and hasn't been decided um, and I know that the Lib Dems are saying that all the, all the lawyers that they're speaking to have said that it's very much possible that you know, we could have a second referendum in two years time with an option to remain. Um, but I, I, as far as I know in terms of the law it's not, it's not confirmed. So when you say the law, are you are you referring to the fact that Article 50 has been um, has been received and it can't be revoked? Yeah, pr pretty much. Um, yes, I exactly. Uh, at this point, there's no legal basis by which we can 
reverse the decision and decide to stay in the EU. Uh, at this point, we're on a the clock's ticking and we're going to leave um, in in April 2019. Um, I mean, we've spoken we've spoken before about there there is there are court cases happening with people looking at the uh, revocability of Article 50, but it's it's not a settled matter, and so I find it quite interesting that the Lib Dems have uh, promised a second ref second referendum. Yeah. It's a bizarre thing to go on because from this election alone, I think there is a lot of fatigue in the UK regarding big elections. I mean, actually, although Trump was elected in the US, it did feel like we were involved in that election, the U the European referendum, mm -hmm. and then you've got the you uh, then you've got obviously our general election. As a political position to say we're going to promise you even more uncertainty and even more votes, it, it just doesn't stack up. I think it's an incredible mis miscalculation. I mean, they're obviously trying to speak to Remainers and, and, and people who may, may be voted Leave but think that Brexit isn't worth it for, you know, at, at all mm. costs. Um, so, you know, if, if we come out with a really bad deal and it's looking like it's going bad, then maybe we should have the option to stay in. Um, but yeah, I, I think as well the evidence is kind of suggesting that it might not work, um, this whole thing, and that most of the countries kind of... Uh, we, we spoke in the last one about the whole leavers and relievers, mm. and that, was it 68% uh, 68 I think it was of the country are, are basically happy that we should try and do this. And so I think the evidence is kind of suggesting that the position they've taken might not work for them. Yeah, I mean, it kind of stacks up. I mean, if this goes two years to, for, for the divorce deal, three years for a transitional deal, there's a lot of resource, a lot of money being spent on doing it for us to just say, actually, well, no, we're going to keep the status quo as five years ago. Yeah, and I think some people have raised, you know, what kind of impact would that have on our on our you know, generally, well, a, I think our future diplomacy within the EU, but globally, you know, there's a bit, yeah. there's a bit of a lost face. You know, how much influence do we have in the EU if we make them spend you know, colossal amounts of money in staff time sorting all of this out? Only at the eleventh hour to go. Oh, actually, don't worry. Yeah. Um, and I think kind of that was you know that research we talked <coughs> about last time with, uh, with whichever polling company it was around the relievers. Is I think that kind of acknowledgement that actually you know, we, you know, we may not want it, we may not be what we voted for, but we started this process now, and we are going to have to see it through, mm -hmm. uh, and just make the best of it. Yeah. Um, well, I think one other thing we should just touch on very quickly is: Did anyone watch the leaders' debates for the well for the actual minor parties? No, I didn't. I think with, I thought it was all a bit odd. With you know, I think someone said you know you get to hear a debate between a load of parties that collectively uh, have about fourteen percent of the vote. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I uh, I dipped out. I didn't. I didn't see it either. I, I did actually manage to watch it for oh about fifteen minutes uh, before it had to be turned off. Uh, and one of the things that struck me, is, is I think the SNP might have a have a slight argument here because they do have a lot of MPs, in, in fairness to them. But it struck, that struck me as odd that both Plaid Cymru and the SNP are asking for represent, rep, uh, representation from their parties to actually join, join the Brexit talks. Wondering if either of you had any thoughts on, on, on that. Well, I mean, in the, the Lancaster House speech of Theresa May back in back in January or February, committed, didn't it, to the point that they would there would be representatives from the devolved nations. Mm. Um, but it's not clear that you know if you know if the polls go the way we think they're going to go, and we end up with a majority Conservative government on the 9th of June, um, then it's not clear that Labour will be present at any of those. Yeah discussions either, that it will be led by the government. Um, so it, it kind of seems odd why minority parties. So certainly the air, you know, they, they will be the geographic representation of the devolved nations uh, and even the metro mayors for the, uh, for the cities as well. That's been confirmed already. Um, but it, seemed, it would seem odd to kind of put you know, smaller share parties in there as well. Let's just fast forward to 
the election's been won by Theresa May, if it has, okay? And Jeremy Corbyn has been re being replaced by a slightly more centrist Labour um, Labour leader. Do you think there's en ever any chance that the Brexit talks could become cross-party? There's that's a question. That's an interesting idea. <laughs> um, I mean, in a way, party would like to think it would be anyway. I think, you know, this is one of those kind of totemic issues where yeah. some cross-party agreement here would be incredibly helpful. Um, is it plausible? I guess that's your question. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, uh, the, the, my, my gut reaction at this stage is no, it doesn't feel plausible. Mm. Um, and the fact that the two parties are in are in such different places, that there is some alignment between them, but I think for now it seems, it seems kind of implausible. Excellent. Right, well, we'll leave it there then. Um, anything in the Chamber of Commerce that you want to announce for this week or next week? I think my big news is I'm going on leave next week. Uh, and that's going to be lovely. So uh, I can't comment much more on what's going to be happening while that I'm away. certainly will make the front pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at... Uh, G... Well, I've forgotten. At GMCC underscore Christian. Alex? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. Uh, and I'm at J Beardmore at... Or at Pearson's underscore FS... How on? SFB. Um, also, feel free to leave us some iTunes reviews. We really do appreciate them. And also, it helps other people find this podcast. So, uh, next week, as Christian mentioned, he is on leave. Also, there's a small matter of the general election. So, whether anything of any use will happen regarding Brexit is, is debatable. But what we can promise you is we will be back on the Friday after the election with our immediate reaction and, uh, again, to talk a little bit more about Brexit. So, until then... Uh, I will see you there. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.